Welcome to episode 130, Intimate Partner Death and Loss, Clinical Approaches, Myths, and What Not to Do, featuring Jill Johnson-Young, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am honored and always delighted to be joined by Jill Johnson-Young. Jill is a licensed clinical social worker, and she is the CEO of Central Counseling Services in Riverside, Marietta, and Corona, California. And she is um, what I call the grief Jedi. Um, She is the expert in all things grief-related. And today she's going to be talking with us about an intimate partner loss and what we as clinicians need to know and and improve upon in terms of how we serve people that are going through this. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me back. I love talking with you. And I love the questions your audience has come up with in the past. (laughs) Yes, you know, and that's, that's actually, I think, one of the neatest parts about being able to do this is having conversations with people like you that are so experienced. And so I think about someone like you, creating a presentation and then sitting there having questions. And now I get to actually just ask you what they are. Um, And then also, I know you hear from our listeners, which I think is really special. Um, So thank you for joining me again to do this. Why don't you tell us more about you for the folks who don't know who you are and about your background and the work that you do? So as you said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and um, I have my master's from the University of South Florida, go Bulls. And um I've been doing grief and loss since before most of your listeners are born. I worked in the um, AIDS pandemic at the very, very beginning before we had the name for it out here in the Inland Empire when all we had was a shelter and we would take people from the hospital who had ugly warning signs on their doors, which were illegal, and um, took them to our shelter and they would last maybe six months or less. So I was boots on the ground, the first social worker there. I did hospice collectively for about 13 years in two states. Um, I eventually ended up running the children's grief program in the schools in Florida for a very large hospice, which I loved doing. And I also specialized in pediatric hospice, helping families as they lost children. But I did all the other ages as well. Um, And by the time I finished my master's, I was in charge of the grief program, the bereavement center, the chaplains, the social workers, um, all of the psychosocial team um, for three counties. We had a census of about 3,000 patients. Um, My favorite part was always being with the families. I I loved having the honor of helping people get ready to die and helping families say goodbye, and then being able to be there afterward and supporting the families in doing the grief work. And since then, I've also worked for child welfare. I did adoptions for a long time, which has its own loss work because children who are coming out of foster care have had a lot of losses and adoption involves losses. Um, And in the middle of all that, I have been married three times now, but never divorced. So I was married first to Linda for 23 years. We went through breast cancer with her, which was supposed to be terminal when we were in Florida. And she really kicked butt and survived. But the chemotherapy that she had um, is now known for causing heart and lung damage. It wasn't known for that then. Now it comes with a black box warning label. I'm glad she had it. She would have died without it. And she was glad for it. Eventually, though, it caused pulmonary fibrosis. And pulmonary fibrosis is 100% fatal. You can't survive it. It turns your lungs into basically a dry loofah sponge. And then that causes heart failure because the lungs tan the back of the heart. So it's a, it's a double no win. And um, it took about three years start to finish for her death. And in the middle of her dying, she got very close to one of her hospice nurses named Casper. Not everyone has a hospice nurse named after a friendly ghost. And the two of them were like two peas in a pod. I would, of course, try to be there and they'd shoo me out and like, go go to work. We're doing what we do. We're nurses. We know how to talk to each other. Go back to work. So I stopped and I, they developed a friendship and started drinking chocolate sodas together. And Casper would sneak back for lunch hours that she never took. I didn't even know this was happening. And Casper made friends with our kids. And before Linda died, she started telling Casper that she had to come back and marry me. 
and telling me that I needed to marry Casper because I could not raise our three kids uh, by myself. Three teenage girls, nobody should be alone with three teenage girls. Let me just say that's just not okay. And they're all adopted and one I was still adopting and they were all a year apart. What's funny is people would look at me and say, now, why did you plan them that way? I wasn't there at the time. I was in Florida. They were born in Lancaster. I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> right? Then they really stare at you. Um, and so she told the kids, she told our minister, she told everybody. We told her to shut up. Literally, the whole focus was on Linda. I was saying goodbye to my wife. Casper uh, was there the day Linda died. And um, for me, that was really special because I have those moments that never leave my head, but not in a bad way. I remember Casper leaning over and saying, let's take the oxygen mask off of her. She doesn't need it anymore. She'd been comatose for an hour. She, I said, but she, she said, no, she doesn't need it. She's already transitioned. She's, she's just too young. Her brain hasn't figured it out yet, but she hated that mask. Let's let her, let her have her last hour without it. And let's turn off the oxygen. And so um, after I lost Linda, Casper and I spent some time having coffee. And then we started sneaking around because I'd been warned. I was warned by a very good friend who'd been widowed by a good friend of mine two years before. There are widow rules and you can't break them. And here they all are. And one of them was, even if you're going out for coffee or dinner and it's completely just a friend, don't do it in town. People will see you and you will never be forgiven. And it turns out that's right. There are widow rules and people are not forgiving. And so we eventually got together and um, it worked. Casper and Linda were very much alike. It wasn't replacing Linda, but it was very comfortable. The kids were comfortable. I would come home from work before we were public and find out the kids had called her while I was working late and made up excuses for her to come and nurse them for various things. And they were testing her. And we married, and then six months into our relationship, we were on a lanai in Hawaii on a trip that Linda had wanted to take with the kids and had not survived to do. And after about day six, we were sitting out and having coffee, and her coffee cup flew across the lanai. And I said, what was that? Because Casper never got angry. She never had an angry moment. And she said, I don't know. I had these weird dreams last night. And it was hard to figure out if it was real or not real when I woke up. And my hand is shaking. And that was Louis Body Dementia coming on. We didn't know it. It took three out of three and a half years to get it diagnosed. I figured out what it was sometime into it. I finally had to force the doctor to use the name for it. And um, she died in December of 2013, right before Christmas. We got through... Thanksgiving without her being able to eat or drink. And um, in the middle of all that, I also had become friends, well, we had become friends as a couple with the funeral director who had met with myself and Linda to make arrangements for her cremation because Linda planned her cremation. She helped pick out her burial site, our interment site. She told me what she wanted on our headstone. I have two headstones, by the way. I'm a condo. And um, she wrote her own obituary. She planned her own service. She picked out the pictures for her memorial video. We, we got ready for her death. And Casper was part of that. And Stacy was part of that. So Stacy came and picked up Linda after she died. And then she started seeing the blogs I was writing. Because I wrote blogs while each of them was ill. And I wrote blogs during the grief process. I wrote the blogs while they were sick to warn people. So that if they wanted to come over, they would know what they were seeing. Then if they wanted me to call them, they would know why I wouldn't call them back. Because my rule is when someone's sick, if you're the primary person, you don't have to respond unless you really need to. Your energy needs to stay at home and stay focused. So Stacy started seeing how few people were actually helping with Casper. Because when you break the widow rules, people vote with their feet and they disappear. And you sort of think people are going to support you. And what you find is... They feel free to say things like, I really disapprove of what you're doing, which is weird because, you know, that's, I, I don't think we get to vote on who, who falls in love, how someone grieves, but there's a whole lot of voting that goes on behind the scenes. And so I had fewer people helping. I had my good girlfriends from childhood. Um, I had my kids. Um, I had a few other friends, but I didn't have the, the crowd that I had before. And so Stacy started coming by after she got off the train from being a funeral director in Orange County all day 
and she would sit with Casper and hang out with her because they got along well, and I would go take a nap downstairs. We had Stacy's brother staying with us, helping myself and the kids, basically. And so Stacy would come up, and she would hang out with her. And she was there the day Casper died and was in tears. And um, then after Casper died, she hung out some more, and we eventually ended up marrying. So I am actually married for a third time to the funeral director who took care of both of my previous wives. I am the only one who can say that, I think, on this planet. I've checked. I haven't found anyone yet. I was going to say, if any of our (laughs) listeners know of another, can we please introduce Jill to whoever this person is? Right. Um, So I'm active in the funeral director community. I've officiated some services now when there's needed a pinch hit moment, which is kind of nice because I get to help people start grieving. And um, I am all in on grief. That's my private practice focus is grief and dementia. When you talk about this, you talk about your professional experience and your training, but this particular topic about intimate partner loss, as our listeners now just know, is very, very, very personal for you. It is. And it's done so badly. And it has been for so many years. When I first started doing hospice, and that was a very long time ago, all the curriculum written by all the best minds was you always tell people who've lost an intimate partner, you can't make any changes for a year. You can't date. You can't. There was a whole lot of can'ts and shoulds. And it turns out the research doesn't support that. And the reality doesn't support it. But the message is there. And it makes it so much harder for people who've lost an intimate partner. And then I've done some of my own research, as you know, and it's it also bears out that we're doing it wrong. And then I watch all the, you know, I'm, I'm in all the grief groups because I qualify. And um, I'm in a lot of therapist groups online. And in the back channels on therapist groups, when someone talks about grief and working with a griever, when they're talking about intimate partner loss, all these rules and all this knowledge that isn't real just flies up. And if I try to counter it gently or not so gently, because sometimes I get opinionated, you know. Um, I'm a social worker. It's what we do. And um, when I when I offer it, I, I get blowback. You know, how can you do that? And I think we just need to be more aware because our work is supposed to be client-driven, not our opinion-driven. And when it comes to intimate partner loss, it's a really big deal. So let's start by discussing, well, I guess first, how you're even defining intimate partner loss. So what is an intimate partner? What qualifies as an intimate partner for you? If you've had a relationship where after someone dies, you wake up to an empty bed, or you wake up to a phone where the person that you were with but long distance cannot respond, you've had an intimate partner loss. You don't have to be married. It doesn't even necessarily have to be public, but it's somebody that you expected to wake up next to or to be with and that was your future. I don't even know where to start because there's so much here, Jill. I'm going to let you say, like, where do you think we start? Some of the assumptions that I see from therapists about intimate partner loss are things that we think we know from knowledge, like with grief, where we think we know that those five stages are how grief always works. I ran into that last night in a group. No, no, it's the stages. The stages folks belong to anticipatory grief. And intimate partners are not merry and they are not nuns or priests just because their partner died. And as they were getting ready for their partner dying, they were thinking about what their life was going to be like without them already. And we need to give them credit for that and reflect that back because their whole world has changed. When you lose anybody else, You know, if you lose a child, and I'm not minimizing child loss, so don't anyone hear me say that. But when you lose a child, that is not someone that you think you're going to be waking up to for the rest of your life, right? You're going to see them grow up and go out on their own and do all the things kids are supposed to do. And if you lose that child, you lose those experiences, and they are devastating. When you lose an intimate partner, the, the morning that Linda was dying, and I knew she was dying, she'd been dying for a couple of days. Um, I took a shower because I just really needed to freshen up a little bit. And I remember standing in that shower and thinking, the next time I take a shower, Linda's not going to be alive. 
Linda is never going to share the shower with me again. We're never going to like towel each other off again and laugh together about some secret thought process or one of our, you know, one of those partner things that we all have intimate jokes about. That's intimate partner loss. You wake up in the morning and the bed is empty and you roll over and you put your hand out. And for that first two or three months, you wake up every morning and realize they've died all over again. That is a tremendous ongoing loss. And it is those intimate moments, the fact that you go get a massage the first time and you think from now on, I'm going to have to pay someone to touch me when I don't have my clothes on because that's not something other people do. Most of us, right? My friends and I rub each other's backs, but typically we have our clothes on and we're having a glass of wine and we're in front of their fireplace with four or five other friends, right? It's, it's not the same. And so that kind of loss has to be acknowledged and and it's such an overwhelming every part of your life. When I talk to people who've lost intimate partners, it's every day when I got home from work, my spouse opened the car door for me. Nobody does that anymore. You know, I wasn't the cook, he was. My current wife, Stacy, used to do widow lessons when she worked in a big mortuary in Arizona. And new widows would come and they would do things like, this is how to put gas in your gas tank. Because they had a significant senior citizen population and those spouses... The women who lost their husbands, it was the husbands who took the car for the oil change and put the gas in the car and went to the ATM and managed the finances. And none of that was done. And they had to learn how to do it. So it's, it's an almost overwhelming sense of everything in my world has shifted. And now I got to deal with this. And other people who haven't been there don't know, but they think that they know how I should do this. And especially for women who lose intimate partners, there's a huge assumption that they are somehow more fragile, which I don't understand because we're the ones who push the babies out or adopt the babies, right? We're the ones, but we're fragile somehow. And so we shouldn't be making decisions. We shouldn't plan things. We shouldn't take care of the funeral. And so women who lose intimate partners tend to lose their power for their grief process at the very beginning. And then they just don't know how to get it back. And it's kind of like being buffeted. And it's just a it's a process that therapists have the ability to change. If we think about it from where they are, and if we think about it from all of the parts that they have lost. What you're talking about is in what I would call the there, 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 mm-hmm. let me do that. So mm-hmm. talk more, please, about anticipatory grief and the Kubler-Ross model and clarify for many people you know, I, I know for me, it's like when I learned about the five stages of grief, it, it was taught like this is what people go through. And maybe it's nonlinear, but this is what we go through after we lose somebody or there's a major loss. It maybe isn't necessarily about a death, but a major change. Tell me, tell me about the misconceptions there. Kubler-Ross was an amazing woman and we are all in her debt. And if you somehow don't know her, you need to read her stuff because we are in her debt. She's the first one who started talking about death and dying. And her first book was On Death and Dying. And it came from her work in meeting with people who were dying and trying to figure out what their experience was. And so she conceptualized it into stages, which she never meant to be linear and which were descriptive. There was nothing measurable about them. There was none of the, any of the stuff we do with research now. It was descriptive and it was helpful because it helped people who were dying understand why they were pissed off. Um, which is officially called anger, but they were pissed off because they were dying. And it didn't matter how old they were. They just, you know, nobody wants to be told your life is going to end way faster than you thought it was going to. And bargaining is really somebody who's dying and saying, okay, wait, wait, wait. I know I ate the wrong foods and now I've got heart disease, which may not have anything to do one with the other. But if I eat all the kale and all the cabbage, I'm going to get another 10 years, right? There's there's all the bargaining. Or if I pray hard enough, I'm going to get out of this one and you're just not. They impact the surviving family because a surviving family is going through this process with the person who's dying. And so understanding those five stages is absolutely essential in doing grief work, and especially for an intimate partner, because if they are the target of the anger, then they don't understand why their spouse was angry with them when they were dying. And if you can reframe it as, let's look at it instead of them being angry at you, let's look at it as, They were really angry they were dying and having to leave you. And it fell out all over you because you were the safest, closest person to them. And they trusted you. 
And if you're the surviving partner and their parent was still alive, they weren't going to get all pissed off at their senior parents. You were the one who could absorb that for them because you were the partner. And so it's these are the things that surviving partners have experienced. They've gone through the denial. Oh my God, they, you can't let them die, right? I remember sitting in that oncologist's office when Linda was first diagnosed and him saying, okay, we're, we're way behind the eight ball. If we're lucky, you're going to make it to Christmas. It was right after the 4th of July. And it felt like the world was sucking out from underneath us, especially me. But that's the partner's experience. And they're experiencing alongside and companioning their dying partner as they're going through these stages, which again are not linear. They may not all happen, but they're there. They are not part of the grief process. When you especially are an intimate partner and you are companioning your loved one as they are dying, you are literally facing every little change. You're facing when they become incontinent and you have to start using a catheter because your back hurts too much and you can't lift them to get them to the bedside commode that you never thought you'd see in your house, right? Um, you are sitting with them in bed when they can't breathe because at the end of life, everybody can't breathe and you're talking them through it and you're talking about what they want for you for the rest of your life, if you're lucky and you're helping kids, adult or children, say goodbye. You're doing that with them. You're seeing every part of the loss. In doing that, you're thinking ahead of what's going to happen when they're not here. Like that moment in the shower, what is it going to be like the first time I do this and I know Linda's not going to be downstairs or not going to be in our room and, and we're never going to have those moments again. So there's the intimate partner doing those stages does it with their partner, but there aren't stages afterwards. There's process afterwards. There's finishing the loss afterwards. There's um, completing the things that you didn't get to complete together. There's finishing up any plans they might have had for you or not finishing them if you decide you're not going to, right? It's those things. One of the things, Linda had a, a three-page bucket list and I got every last one of them done. One of them was finishing my license, which I put off multiple times because she had been sick both times I started it. I did 7,000 hours, thank you. Um, I took my first exam a month after she died and I finished my license within six months of her death. And I took it off my list because I finished those and partly that was for her and partly that was for me, right? When you talk about this, I know at least for me, having watched loved ones go through intimate partner loss, for me as an observer, not even as a clinician, I just have such a sense of powerlessness. And I imagine for our listeners struggling with that in therapy too, because it's just so big. It's so grave and it can't, it really cannot be overstated. And you and I have talked before in prior episodes about kind of the stuff that people say to folks that have <laughs> lost people, you know, they're in a better place. Can you talk just briefly about that and kind of the what not to say list for therapists when you're sitting with somebody in the room that is going through this? What you don't want to say to someone who's coming in and they've just lost their spouse or an intimate partner. You don't want to say this is part of a plan. You don't want to say, well, isn't it a relief that they're in that better place or they're out of their suffering or that this is over? Um, you don't want to reference that, you know, if they've got a faith that it must be nice to know that, you know, they're, they've gone someplace or that God had has a plan for them and they're going to be watching over you. You don't want to do any of that. You want to just hold space. You want to just give them a place to talk. And with an intimate partner loss, you want to make sure that that includes talking about every single bit of the loss. And that includes the loss of intimacy and the loss of sexual intimacy. Those are things that intimate partners who've lost their spouse want and need to talk about. And those are things that therapists are not comfortable talking about. And you are the only place because if someone who's lost a spouse sits down to talk with their minister or their faith leader or their BFF that they've been BFFs with and the spouses are best friends too, you can't talk about how much you miss that because then there's an implication that maybe, just maybe, you want to do that again and then you are violating some rule, right? And I've done some research on this. I've done a survey now, it's not huge and comprehensive, but there were more than 150 
participants who were both couples who were facing the imminent loss of a spouse or partners who'd survived the loss of a spouse and hospice staff as well as therapists doing grief work and therapists not doing grief work. I tried to cover all the platforms. A hundred percent of those who were not in the relationship itself said they would not bring this up. One hundred percent. And one hundred percent of the partners said they wished somebody would. They wished somebody had talked about it before the death so they could have fostered some intimacy together as part of their goodbye process. Because what happens is when you're losing your intimate partner, you become a caregiver to everyone around you. And there's this assumption that you're only about the caregiving. And that's not what the assumption should be. Because if you were partners, you still have that relationship there. It's just unspoken. So when Casper was bedbound, um, which she was for close to three months because Louis body makes you fall a lot. She was still a hospice nurse. And I came home one day and she had talked to the nurses there just very bluntly because hospice nurses tend to tell it like it is. And what she said was, there will be a time coming where I won't be able to snuggle with Jill or hold Jill anymore. And we need that to say goodbye. And I need to be able to get out of this hospital bed and back into our bed. And by the time I got home, they had found, with the help of the kids, um, the zip ties in the garage. And they had zip tied and roped together the two bases of the two beds so that on good days, we could drop the bedside rails and she could come over into the bed. And on the bad days and the bad nights, where with Louis body, it's dangerous because there's thrashing and punching and kicking, uh, which can cause physical injuries and broken bones. I could put the bedside rails up, put pillows over it, but I could still hold her. I could still reach her. That's intimacy. And that's part of saying goodbye. And that's something that if you are working as a therapist with someone who is losing their spouse, that you should be, and this is a should, you should be actively addressing. How is it that you are maintaining your intimate relationship beyond being the caregiver? How are you finding time to hold hands, to look at each other eye to eye? How are you doing that? Even if it's dementia that is in stage and it's not a dementia like Louie, there's still those intimate moments and that's still your spouse. And that's part of the way spouses say goodbye, right? Jill, can you talk about the grief difference between um, an intimate partner who saw the loss coming because of something like dementia or cancer diagnosis, something like that, versus an abrupt partner loss? How is that process different for grieving? What do therapists need to know about how that's going to, to look? My experience is it's much harder because even though you're watching someone die, you're getting the opportunity to say goodbye. When you get that knock on the door or the phone call, or you've sent them to the hospital with COVID, which doesn't give you any goodbye time because you're not there, you don't have the opportunity to recognize that you're, you're losing all of your intimate relationship. It's just a bang and it's over. And that's even harder because you didn't get to prepare yourself emotionally and mentally and physically for that person not being next to you. You didn't get to think it through ahead of time. And that is definitely where a therapist needs to come in and address that head on, or at least make it safe. And that's part of what I do. Even on screen, I will say, look, this is our space. As long as you've got the door shut and you've got a headset on, no one's gonna know what we're talking about. And certainly nobody on my end does either. Let's talk about what it's like to not to come home and not lay in bed next to your spouse. What is it like to, I don't know, pick out pajamas or not pajamas? What is that like without someone next to you? What is it like to wake up in the morning and they're not there? And they will immediately identify with that. And you have given them an opening. I have had intimate surviving spouses talk about what they miss in terms of their sexual activity very bluntly what kinds of things they did very bluntly because I'm the only person they can do that with. And so be prepared because if you're offering it up, you may hear things that none of your other clients are ever going to tell you, right? Because clients by and large have trouble talking about sexual intimacy with their therapist, even if they have a good relationship. This is really blunt because they are grieving that. 
they're not just missing it, they're grieving it, they're saying goodbye to it. Because whether or not they partner up again with someone, it's never going to be the same. One person wrote a book called Getting Naked Again, and it's literally about what it's like after you've left a relationship or been widowed to be with someone again after you've been married to someone for 10, 15, 30 years. It's a really different experience. You can't talk about that with other people. Your therapist is where that can be done safely, knowing that if nothing else, you have paid them to not share. It's never going to become fodder for any kind of conversation amongst your friends. This is just you and your therapist and it stays safe. When thinking about the loss of an in intimate partner, so the Gottman's research, for example, about relationships has found that on average, people start therapy, couples start therapy five to seven years after they really should have. I'm curious for you as a grief expert, when you're thinking about intimate partner loss, when should somebody be starting therapy? Like, is it so if your partner receives a terminal diagnosis, is it as soon as that happens? And if someone passes away abruptly, is it as soon as that person has passed away? I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective, what does that timeline look like? I think it should be sooner than later, as long as they find a therapist who knows how to do grief, not someone who does therapy and says they know how to do grief, but hasn't had specific training. Because if they are seeking someone out while the dying process is happening, they need someone who knows what the dying process looks like. You have to know what they're going to see. You need to know about Shane Stokes breathing, and you need to know what the guttural sound is that sounds like when someone's dying. You need to be able to encourage them to reach out to their hospice team to be able to get the help they need sooner than later. You have to be familiar with all the parts, the, the real parts of someone in the dying process to be able to prepare them for it and walk them through it. And then to receive them afterward, if they haven't had that explained and they're traumatized by it, you have to be able to walk them through, okay, you saw this, this is what you were really seeing, right? And if someone has had an abrupt loss, it should be, I would hope right away, because when there's been an abrupt loss, that's when people rush in with all the best intentions to try and help. And that person is so overwhelmed in general that they don't put up boundaries. And so what they wake up to is someone has decided that it's best that they not have to look at their spouse's clothing anymore. And so they've gone out to plan the funeral and all the clothes have been given away. Or um, someone has decided that they needed to freshen up the room and they changed the sheets. Don't change the sheets. Don't do that. They smell like the partner who died. And after an abrupt loss, that's really important, right? So they need to be able to have someone who can companion them as their therapist and help them build the boundaries. If they want this in the service and everyone else wants this, this is their service. They're the center. In grief, we have concentric circles in circle theory. And the person who is the intimate partner is the center circle. And the energy should go toward that person, but the boundaries should be around that person to determine what's going to happen to their world because half their world has just disappeared without any warning. What would you say to the clinician who has an existing relationship with a client that goes through an abrupt or not even abrupt partner loss? Would you recommend that that person try to get up to snuff really quickly about grief work? Or would you bring in someone like yourself to complement the therapeutic work that was already in existence prior to the loss? I've had therapists recommend people to see me and you'll just see Jill for the grief and then you'll see me for the other. It doesn't work because if they're seeing someone else for depression or anxiety, the grief is bleeding all over that, right? And so then they feel like they have to compartmentalize and they start feeling like they're being disloyal to me or disloyal to the other therapist. That therapist can pull in a crash course, can do some consultation with another grief therapist. And there are lots of us. There are some great resources online for therapists. Um, if you, um, there's a grief therapist online group on Facebook that Debbie Jenkins Frankel runs. And there's lots of people who will jump in and provide resources for you. Um, those people can help you do this work but don't sever your relationship because you're the only other intimate relationship your client has. They've lost their major one. You're the minor league one. You need to stick with them. 
I think that consideration is important in what you just said of, you know, make make sure that you as a clinician then are getting the consultation and education that you need to adequately support them so that you can maintain that intimate relationship that you have with the client so they don't have another loss. Um, and for our listeners too, so we've done a couple of interviews with Jill um, one at the beginning of the pandemic called Grip of Grief, and then another one also talking about COVID losses. We are talking about one side of this equation right now, which is the, the kind of the, the surviving partner and supporting them. And I also want to note, we have an episode featuring Dr. Christopher Kerr discussing um, supporting the dying process for the person who is passing away, regardless of whether or not they're in an intimate relationship. So I want to point out, if you haven't seen those episodes, they're there as well. Um, Jill, we're still, so as you and I record this, we're in April of 2021. Now we're learning more about the COVID widows and the COVID orphans. Can you talk for just a little bit kind of about the different grieving process for those COVID widows? COVID widows are actually their own special group, just like the 9-11 widows were um, from the fire department in New York. We know that there are more widows than any other group who've had losses because more men died slightly than women. We also know that most people who've had a COVID loss have not had the memorial service or funeral they needed. They may have had one on Zoom. They may have had a socially distanced one. And if you haven't seen those, it's like 10 chairs, six feet apart, and it doesn't feel like a funeral. And it doesn't include the touching and the holding and the things that everybody, but particularly a new widow or widower needs. And so those folks are going to need the ability to have a redo on the service because they need to be able to remember them as they were. And they also need to share how they are doing now because they've started the recovery process already but it's important for them to be able to identify who they need for support. And they need all of us to show up for those services. They really do. If you are a therapist working with someone and they are saying, I'm not sure I should have this service now because, you know, 500,000 people have died plus and other people had more recent losses. It doesn't matter. What matters is you've had your loss and you need to have your service and it needs to be your way. And, if you belong to a church that won't do it the way you want it, go find another venue. You may become partly a funeral planner in your work in grief right now. That's not at all unusual. I have lots of clients who are sounding out, you know, the church won't let me do this, that, or the other, whatever church that is. Okay, well, then what other venue will, right? You've got them in a box on the mantle. Is that where you want to keep them or do you want to do a scattering too? How are we going to do that? And it is a we because I'm helping them with part of the planning and then helping them identify who they want to have them put this together for them and how they want to do it. So it's their way. These are folks who have had a loss like no other. They didn't get to be present. So I'm curious for you, whether it's a, a COVID-related loss or not, I see things pop up on social media about invitations to funerals. How do you as a grief therapist feel about that? And obviously, this is dependent on the client and the therapist and the relationship between them and the context of the work. But I'm just curious in general, like, how do you feel about a therapist attending a funeral? I think if you've got a relationship, first of all, with the person who died and that person wanted you to be there, you should be there. You can get, if you know someone's dying, you can get a release before they die that specifies you can be there. I have never seen a therapist attend a funeral with a tag on that says, hello, I'm Jill. I was a therapist of X, Y, and Z person, and I know these secrets about them, right? It is possible to attend a funeral and not identify yourself. You don't have to introduce yourself to people. You can sneak in the back and sneak out the back. If you're there for the surviving partner, then you make sure that they spot you, but you don't have to do a session right there. They're just seeing you cared enough to show up. Or you can go to the visitation if there is one. Those are those have gone by the wayside with COVID. I'm sure they'll come back and probably enforce. I think you want to double check whether or not the person who wants you there is going to want you to be part of things and be public because clearly that's not our role. That's their family's role. That's their friend's role. You're supporting people. But if someone asks me to be there, and it, even with the work I do, it doesn't happen very often, I will show up because... That's my way of honoring them. I've had other clients who've had prior therapists who haven't even recognized they were dying 
or who said, no, I won't come because it's a breach. And it's kind of a soul crushing moment for the client because they see you as their support system. And especially with COVID right now, there are so few support systems left because everyone is so distanced. We're the ones that actually maintain the greatest intimacy with people who were losing partners, other than the people coming into the home, if there are any, to do the care. If there's been an accident on the freeway and they don't have kids at home, you're the only person that they're talking this through in this manner on a screen. I know it's not a popular opinion, so I'll attack me all you want, folks. I'm still going to stick with it. I'm a little opinionated. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Just speaking for myself, I don't know if I'd consider it an unpopular opinion. I think it's a really personal decision between a clinician and a client. And I think as a law and ethics trainer, we find ourselves in a lot of trouble where it's like, well, that's unethical. And it's like, whoa, like there's a lot of gray area in ethics. And I think that's right. part of why it makes people really uncomfortable. And it does. And then they come down with no. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't do this or you have to do this. And I I wanted to hear from your perspective, like what does that mean? How do you make this, this decision? And what are the factors you're considering? Because really, and this is my nerd hat from a clinical documentation and medical necessity perspective from all of that, I'm thinking of, you know, what's in the best interest of the client? How do we justify the decision that we've made, whether it's to go to a funeral, to not go, to go to a wedding, to not go, um, you know, whatever it is. And it's not that something is inherently unethical. It's just that it's very personal and it's a gray area. And so if we make a call, we need to be able to justify why we made that call. We need to have a rationale for it. Yeah. Right. I I appreciate you kind of answering that question as as openly and fully as you did. Um, One of the things I know to be true about you in the work that you do, and I think that makes it not as grave as someone might think, is your (laughs) use of humor. Can you yes. talk about that and how you integrate humor, how you see it, and how you, you've you learned over the years to kind of weave that into your work? I love the way you use the word grave to talk about how serious this is. Yes, um, humor is absolutely part of doing grief work and loss work, and both for the client and for the therapist, because therapists who can't be humorous in doing grief work are not going to survive. It can be stressful. It can be a lot to sit and absorb people's losses all day long. And it's also a lot for a client to feel like they have to serious up to be able to talk to you. You are the first person who's going to give them permission to laugh. The first person who's going to be able to make jokes with them about the person who died in all likelihood, unless you're in my family, in which case we do it all the time anyway, because it's organic at our house. I weave it in in a variety of ways, um, partly by asking, after someone has told me their story, you know, what are the things that really, really irritated you about your spouse? Those are the things that also make us smile, if you think about it, right? Whether it's the way they chewed or the fact that they wanted everything rolled up just the right way. I asked them about what made their, their loved one laugh and what silly stories they had between the two of them. It relaxes them and it gives them permission to laugh and smile again because the widow rules include thou shalt not laugh, thou shalt not smile. Now thou shalt also not be too serious because then it will make other people sad. So you're supposed to be sad, but not too sad. And you're supposed to smile, but not too much. With a therapist, you can do it the way you feel like it. So I use humor all the way through. We laugh about what happened at funerals. We laugh about what it's like to try and empty the catheter bag the first time. I listen to their story and then I listen for where the humor might be. I don't force it. It needs to be organic. But it also is something that I will tell my clients, you clearly chose me. You found me online. If you find me online, you know that I have a sense of humor. You are going to hear it. Um, And unless you tell me not to, you're also probably going to hear some blue language because that's who I am when I'm in a clinical setting. And it gives them permission to do those things too. And what's funny is I find the folks who are the part of the most conservative communities, whether it's their spiritual community or their home community, the ones who have to be the most, you know, pulled together and perfect come on screen with me and they are laughing and cussing and talking about the stuff that they miss 
in almost body terms because they don't get to do it anymore. And I'm the safe space and it works. I'm curious, how do you let clients know that? If they don't know you already use humor, do you just use it or do you like do an assessment and preface it and be like, FYI, this is how I show up in the room? I do it from the very beginning. This is, you know, we're before we even start the intake. And when I'm doing an intake with a grief client, it is not a typical first appointment. It's not tell me about family history of depression and all the things that are important. I want those on a written document ahead of time. Clearly, there's going to be a suicide risk assessment at some point in the first session, um, as there is with everybody. But I will tell them, you're going to hear me using humor occasionally. And you will also hear me referencing the losses I've experienced, although only in terms of it supporting you and you getting that I sort of get where you are right now. You're not going to hear everything. It gives them permission to ask me questions and it gives them permission to laugh with me or to let me laugh with them. It just breaks down the barriers at the very beginning. I am very transparent when I'm working with grievers. I have never found that working as a non-transparent therapist with someone who's had a loss is at all successful because, I mean, truly we've all had losses. You can't pretend it. Even if it's just a lizard, when you were a child, you've had a loss. And so I will reference that and say, I've had, I've lost spouses. Um, so you're talking to probably the most dangerous person in the world to be married to. So let's talk about your marriage. Sets it off right away, right? You're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, you don't need to be sorry. It's been a number of years. We're going to get you to where I am right now because you've chosen me as your therapist and we're going to do the work and dig in. That gives them permission to ask them questions. So they will say, did you find when you were widowed that X, Y, Z, and I will tell them yes or no. And then I'll reflect it back with, tell me how that's showing up for you. So that was actually my next question. Tell me more about the widow rules. (laughs) Oh, they're beasts. And um, if you don't know they exist, they are real. Um, I actually list them in my new book because nobody tells anyone they exist. And then you break them and then you lose people and you piss people off and you'll find people are having opinions about you. The widow rules are, as far as I can tell, designed to make other people comfortable about how you do your grief. And in that sense, they also will try to control how you do your grief. And in that sense, they're not fair because Truly, when you have been widowed after a very long illness, the research says you're done with most of your loss process, your intense loss and grief in the first three to six months. Johns Hopkins says so. I believe Johns Hopkins. It's been my experience too. It's been my experience with my clients. That's not a sudden loss. That's a long-term illness loss because you've had all that goodbye time, but nobody else has had that goodbye time. Nobody else has been up all night, every night, night after night, and getting ready night after night after night and going to mortuaries and making plans. They didn't have those steps. So when they first find the loss hits them, it's the day they get the call that someone has died. You are leaps and bounds as a surviving intimate partner ahead of everyone else. And that's where the widow rules come in because you start doing your grief the way you find it needs to be done and other people are playing catch up and not sure why it is you're doing better than they are or doing differently than they are. And they want you to come back to where they are. It happens a lot with adult kids watching a mom or dad who survived their other parent die, doing things differently than what they would want them to do. Right? Oh my God, they're going on a trip. How could they get on a cruise? They're getting on a cruise because they are exhausted. And on a cruise, you can't reach them and their phone is not going to work, and there's no internet unless they choose, and they can get some sunshine for the first time in however number of years, and they can get a massage every day. That's why they're going on a cruise, because they're tired, and they want to have some kind of rejuvenation moment, right? I've had people say, if my dad dies, my mom will never date again. I will never accept it, and I sit back, and I watch, and nine months later, mom is married again, because mom was ready. And mom was exhausted. So widow rules are smile, but not too much. You know, don't laugh in public. And if you laugh, not too hard. And don't look too sad, but do look sad. Because if you don't look sad, then you're not grieving enough. But don't look too sad because then you make us sad. Cry, but not too much. Um, Talk about them, but not too much. And don't make us uncomfortable when you talk about them. 
right? Because then we have to be all sympathetic, even though the griever is not asking you to be sympathetic. It's a whole lot of do this, do that. There's It's head whipping. And it depends on each individual person. And it comes from a place of, if you're not grieving as hard as I am, you didn't love them enough. You weren't dedicated to them enough. You don't miss them enough, which is inherently unfair because an intimate partner misses them more than anyone of all. But they've been missing them since this illness started. Their DOD is not date of death, it's date of diagnosis. They started right then, if it's a long-term illness, or the moment that knock came. They didn't just experience the, the information, whereas everyone else was just experiencing the information. They were thinking, oh my God, now what about the finances, the house, the kids? How am I going to tell the grandkids? They're zooming light years ahead because that's their role, but it leapfrogs them in general ahead of everybody else. And so their experience is going to be different and other people are not going to appreciate it. Your new book is very memorable in its title. And I want you to talk about that for a moment. So you titled your new book, The Rebellious Widow. I know that the rules are in your book, but can you tell me why that rebelliousness was part of your reflection in writing this book and choosing that word and, and how you think that kind of applies to the widowing or widower experience? The rebellious widow comes from, I heard those widow rules about seven days after my first wife died, sitting in a Starbucks and they were being explained to me. And I thought, there's no way in hell I'm going to follow these rules. Who did they come from? I'm curious. Another widow. Okay. She had- So here's um, what you have to do. She was an LCSW and is an LCSW. um, And she was widowed by a very dear friend of mine. And um, we all sort of saw life the same. And she had ultimately remarried and ran into all the same things. And um, in Riverside, even though we're you know, right outside of LA and we've got close to 400,000 people, we're a small town. So she said, if you are gonna be seen anywhere, people are gonna find you. And it's true. The first time I went out to dinner with a friend who had also just been widowed by suicide, we were meeting together for dinner. And don't you know, six church ladies walked into the restaurant and we were at the front table and all six of them surrounded us and they weren't being anything negative, but you know, already the gossip chain was out there. And within an hour, I was getting questions. Well, you know, you and Christina have known each other a long time. Blah, blah, blah. No, she just lost her spouse, right? No, uh-uh, not a chance. We're just supporting each other. There was already that need to, how are you doing this? We need to have a say-so. We need a vote. The shoulds. The shoulds, all the shoulds. So I heard about them from her. And then I knew what Linda had told me to do, right? Linda had been very clear. I don't want to imagine you living your life alone. Casper and I get along great. Casper is a dear friend. Casper gets me and she gets the kids. Casper is so much like me, you'll be a good fit. And you have been a caregiver for seven years now, over the course of our 23 years. And you deserve to have someone healthy who can put their arms around you and kiss you without running out of air. And I knew that that was gonna break the rules. And the person who filled me in knew that that was the request from Linda, she'd heard it herself. And I just decided if if I'm gonna do this my way, I'm gonna do it my way. And I want other widows to have the same permission because widows hear it from everybody what they should and should not do. And they should be able to make their own decisions. And they should also be able to tell people if you can't tolerate how I'm doing this, you can go to one of the outer circles because right now this is my loss and my reorganization and my new life. I think the challenge that you just issued to listeners was very clear. Like if you're in the (laughs) inner circle as a clinician, you need to check the shoulds at the door and manage your counter-transference and support this client in creating a space that is free from the rules and that that's part of how you actually support adaptive healing. And you need to be aware of the rules. And I will tell you just a, a quick story, and I've shared it before, probably in other programs. Um, each time I was widowed, I went and found a therapist immediately because that's what we do, right? Got to keep each other employed. And um, the first one I saw after Linda died looked at me and she said, I, I don't even know what to say. 
like, okay, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> I want you to say, tell me what happened and tell me about your wife. But it was, you lost your spouse. I've worked with other grievers. I, I don't quite know what to say. And then she used the miracle question, which is the wrong thing to do. The second one not only said the same thing, but then she said, well, what made you think you should get remarried again? All right, check that at the door. How did you, did you not check her health to make sure she was well? Said, so like you take the horse to the vet and make sure that their teeth are all, what are you talking about? I, I adopt dogs who are blind and deaf. Of course I didn't do that, right? Besides that, I was set up by my first wife. Why are you asking me this? Why is that even in the equation? I'm here because I've lost two wives in four years and, and I think I need to talk about it. And one of the last things she said was, well, if you're going to work with me, you have to agree not to date again. You have to grieve both of these deaths and, and you didn't finish the first one because you got married too soon. Okay, well, now we're all done because if you can hear all the different shoulds and thou shalt nots and bias, that's just not okay. We need to say, you lost two spouses. That's an incredible amount of loss. Can you tell me about that? And what are you missing about them? Wow, what a different experience that would have been. I think the power in what you just shared, I mean, it's so simple, but so significant in our attempt to really hold space for somebody and to come at it with curiosity, like what I call like anthropological eyes, of like, mm -hmm. let me understand what's happening here instead of saying what it should be. Um, before we close today, so I want to say to our listeners, Jill has so much wonderful content out there on her website. I'm sure she'll tell you about it. You're also absolutely invited to listen to the past interviews that I've done with Jill. And she talks about, particularly in Grip of Grief, about how clinicians can take care of themselves and like her strategies for how she helps manage her feelings when working with people that are deeply in grief. Um, but Jill, tell our listeners more about how they can get in touch with you, tell them about your book, um, and just how to learn more about your work. I mean, I've reached out to you a few times in different contexts asking for guidance. Tell us about you, how they get in touch with you, how to learn more. I'm kind of all over the internet these days, um, which is a little weird as a social worker because we're taught to be humble. Um, but I'm at jilljohnsonyoung.com. Um, I'm also available at centralcounselingservices.com. And I have a website called therebelliouswidow.com. Um, and there you'll find the book. On my website under the Jill Johnson Young, you will find that I have resources for every kind of loss, including non-death losses, pet losses, all those things. Um, I teach courses for therapists. They're listed there. I run grief groups occasionally online. Those are on there as well as the dementia support group, which is free um, for the community once a month. Um, I also have Facebook pages for all of them. I do a weekly grief chat on Fridays with a good friend of mine um, named Deb Hart, who's also a grief person and a hospice nurse. Um, and that's on Fridays at 10 in the morning Pacific time on Facebook. And um, I have an LCSW page on Facebook as well as just my regular personal page. If you find me on the personal page, you're going to find Jill and her politics. If you find me on the LCSW page, you'll just find professional stuff. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and I'm on, um, oh, what's the one with the pink P? Darn it. P Pinterest? Uh, not Pinterest, the other one. Oh, In oh Instagram, the pink I. Yeah. I'm <laughs> I on know Instagram. Good at these I see, I've got people who do this for me, but I do the work. Um, so on Instagram, I do reels. And so I try to get up a, a grief tip weekly on Instagram. So I'm, I'm all over the internet. I'm available for consultation. You can reach me through the websites for consultation. You can um, also reach me at jill at jilljohnsonyoung.com. And that's the easiest email on the planet. Um, and I will do all kinds of um, whatever anybody needs. If someone just needs resources, I will send them out. Um, I am a little busy, but I will get you get your stuff. Um, if there's handouts that I can find for you, I will ship them to you. Because I think the better off our clients can be with grief, um, that's our service to the community. So I, I tend not to be territorial. I tend to be more giving than territorial about my information. You can find the book. Um, at your local bookseller, which is what I would really recommend. You have to order it in. It doesn't take them long. You can also order it at Barnes & Noble, and you can also find it on Amazon. And um, you can also order it through me, 
through my website, in which case, if you say I want a signature on it, I'll put one on there for you. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Jill. Um, you've covered so much information during our talk today. And obviously, there's so much more that could be said. But thank you for just this primer of the factors that therapists need to keep in mind. Um, you do a real service to the community in a number of ways. So thank you for taking the time out to be with us today. Thank you for having me. It feels like recess when I get to come out and talk to people. I miss conferences. <laughs> right. Soon enough, one day. We'll get back Soon to enough, it. it's coming when it's safe. Thank you. And thank you for listening, everybody. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.